I'd like us to look at John chapter 2. I was going to take um, what would have amounted to about 100 verses out of Isaiah this morning and then decided that that might not be the best thing. So we're going to look at John chapter 2. We're going to look at the entire chapter. Two familiar narrative, uh, narratives put together uh, constitute this chapter. This is the Word of God. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Him, "'They have no more wine.' "'Woman, why do you involve me?' Jesus replied. "'My hour has not yet come.' His mother said to the servants, "'Do whatever he tells you.' Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, "'Fill the jars with water.' So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead... His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Before we... Uh, consider this passage together this morning. Let's ask the Lord's help. Lord, we would ask uh, that uh, by your grace you will give us uh, a full measure of your spirit this morning, that you will work in our hearts to help us to see who you are, to help us to understand your word, 
help us to understand your son. I pray that this morning you will help us to to understand maybe a little bit more than we ever have before what love looks like and what love does for us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we do think of his death, help us not to be morbid, but help us also not to gloss over it, that your Son truly suffered and died in our place, that he bore your wrath that He paid our debt. He paid our punishment on the cross. And yes, there is atonement. Yes, there's reconciliation. Yes, there's resurrection. But before resurrection, there was death and pain and suffering and agony. Help us to see in that your purposes and your love. And open your word, Lord. Give us all the responses we ought to have uh, in terms of uh, our thinking in terms of our feeling and in terms of our spirit. Be with us, we pray. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, both of these are uh, familiar stories uh, that, that you're well familiar with, which is what a familiar story would be. Uh, it's easy to gloss over it uh, as a result. So, when you come to this wedding in John chapter 2, the first uh, few verses, you give a little textual detail, it's in Canaan Galilee, and Canaan Galilee is on the border of what's considered kosher if you're from Jerusalem. So, you're not quite into pagan territory here, uh, but you're in a place which it's, it's a little bit dodgy uh, in terms of cleanliness. So, here's Jesus in this place, in this spot, and he's at a wedding. Now, weddings in this culture, as they ought to be today, uh, were considered a a time of celebration and a time of joy. However, there was also loaded into wedding ceremonies in, uh, in this culture at this time all kinds of prophetic imagery. That is, the wedding was a pointer beyond itself to the messianic age. The bridegroom coming to his bride represented, in many ways, the Messiah coming to his people. In fact, if you work through uh, the prophetic literature, we'll see some of this in Isaiah uh, in due course, Uh, certainly if you work through Revelation, which comes after this, uh, chronologically in terms of Revelation, of course, uh, and if you work through extra-biblical writings of the Jews, you discover that one of the key ways of depicting the Messianic age was with the analogy of a wedding feast. So, the Messianic age is a time of celebration analogous to a wedding. So, when you have a wedding here, Jesus is there, and the subtext actually is not only a time of joy, the subtext is this is representing the guest who's just showed up, but no one knows it. Uh, This ceremony is actually pointing forward to the advent of the Messiah. All of these weddings are declaring one day there will be a great messianic feast. One day there will be a great celebration because Messiah has finally come, of which this wedding is a poor analogy. It will be much, much better than that. And so here's the Messiah. This, This is really about Him, and no one knows that He's there. What they do know is they are about to have a social scandal. Uh, There's an enormous social faux pas which has taken place. They have run out of wine, which just shows you 
that this wedding was not being held at the local Baptist church. Uh, uh, Clearly, you know, we have better standards than what was going on here. And so they say, we've run out of wine. What are we going to do? And so Mary comes up to Jesus and says, look, they have no more wine. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? For my time has not yet come. For a long time now, uh, a lot of atheists will argue that here is a time where Jesus is simply rude and therefore cannot be perfect. He's certainly lacking in manners to his mother. Uh, Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Yet later on, in one of the most tender scenes there will be in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is on the cross, he entrusts Mary to the disciple that he loves, and he says, woman, here is your son. So, woman is putting distance between him and Mary, but it is still tender. It's still respectful. But what he is doing just before he does the first sign which reveals his glory is he's beginning to provide some necessary distance between himself as the Messiah and Mary as someone who needs salvation. That is, it is a massive theological error to believe that Mary always comes to Jesus as his mother, and he is always under her authority. No, when he begins his public ministry, Mary needs to approach him as someone who comes to her Lord and her Savior. She is his, or he is her Messiah. It's It's an enormous error to get that wrong. So, she comes to him as a mother to her son, and Jesus provides a bit of distance because he's about to reveal uh, the first of his signs, which will show that he actually is this glorious Messiah who is to come into the world. Now, another very important detail is that there's six large stone jars used for ceremonial washing. And so, Jesus has these jars used for ceremonial washing filled right to the brim, You could not find, really, in this place, a more fitting symbol for the old covenant ceremonial system than these jars. This summarizes, symbolically, all that the old covenant was uh, was about. And so, here you have this water filled right to the very top, and then Jesus commands the servants to start drawing it out. And it's not water. It's wine. And of course, for us, having heard this story a million times, I can say, it's not water, it's wine, and you have no reaction whatsoever, right? Although if you actually think about it, that's reasonably impressive. If all these jars filled with water, you start drawing out, and it's wine. And it doesn't seem to be that it's actually some sort of grape juice. It actually seems to be wine, because the master of ceremonies comes along, and he says, look, don't you know that people always bring out the best wine first? And after people have had a little bit too much to drink, and and I'm not sure how much grape juice you've consumed. I think it's hard to drink enough grape juice where your senses start to be affected. But he says, after that, I should be more careful. It's it's hard not to make incorrigible comments about wine in certain circumstances, so I'll I'll dial it back. Uh, It's... They save the best, they bring out the best first, and they save the other stuff for later. But you've brought out the best last. Now, with all of this then, what's going on is that Jesus is showing, look, 
all that old covenant law, that was good. But I'm fulfilling it all. Fill it right up to the brim. I'm going to bring about everything that the old covenant law was about, but I'm going to transform it. It's not just more old covenant law. It's not just addition. It's organic transformation. Using what God has revealed in the past, I am now bringing it to consummation. I am bringing it to completion. This water of washing now becomes the wine of the new covenant. This water of washing now becomes the wine of the celebration in the Messianic age. The Messiah is here. And we're told that this is the first of His signs through which He revealed His glory. That is, Jesus has intrinsic glory. Uh, he, he does everything, everything He does is for the glory of God, but He has His own glory as deity incarnate. And He begins to reveal it through these signs. Now, a sign is something which points beyond itself. Uh, the synoptics talk about miracles or dynamos, acts of power. John structures his gospel on signs. Like the first uh, 11 chapters of John is referred to as the book of signs because he does uh, particular signs. The gospel structure revolves around the revelation of his glory by through different aspects and different signs that he does. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about acts of power. John uses the language of signs. A sign, of course, signifies, it signifies, it points beyond itself to another reality. And so the point here, of course, is not, look, Jesus can do really impressive things with water. The point here, of course, is there is a greater spiritual reality behind the physical event that you are seeing. This is to be interpreted. Uh, all of the miracles of Jesus are pointing beyond themselves to deep spiritual truths. And so it's not just, look at the power. This person can, can do the impossible. He can change water into wine. It's, look at this person. Look at his glory. Look at who he is, his identity. This is the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of Old Covenant law. This is the organic completion of it. This is the one who brings in the new age. This is the one who brings in the messianic kingdom. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. A lot of people saw the sign, but they didn't see the glory. But if you had eyes to see, just like so many things in this world love and beauty and, you know, the, the feelings that are evoked in literature and, and poetry and, and music, and fine arts, architecture, all these things, all these, these things of human beauty that we sub-create, we, we create out of the beautiful mediums God has provided us with, and they point all beyond themselves to the source of beauty, God Himself. Just like the oceans and the mountains and the streams and the flowers and the plants and the trees and even the rain, it points beyond itself to the source of beauty. Every aesthetic pleasure is a sign pointing to its source. What Jesus does is he, does, he performs acts of power so that people can see through them to who he is. So they can see through what he does to God the Father and to himself as the Messiah. Now, that's extremely important to understand that Jesus is, is presenting himself as the fulfillment of the old covenant age through a sign that reveals his glory, that the messianic age is now here transcending, fulfilling, and, consum and, and culminating in 
his appearance. The old covenant era is coming to an end, not through abrogation, but through fulfillment. That is essential to understand for the rest of the chapter. John positions the cleansing of the temple as the cleansing of Judaism, as the cleansing of the old covenant era. Again, as the messianic kingdom dawning. And you get that theological interpretation through what he's just done at the wedding at Canaan. Now, there is an argument, there's a long argument uh, amongst uh, biblical scholars as to whether or not Jesus cleanses the temple once or twice. I mean, you, you can't help but note that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he cleanses the temple in the last week of his life. He, he drives at the money changers and all the rest. That's right before he goes to the cross. Here, it's a couple years earlier. And so the question is, does Jesus actually cleanse the temple twice? One at the beginning of his ministry and one is at the, end of the, at the end of his ministry, like bookends. And if that's the case, that's extraordinarily important theologically. Or does John arrange his material thematically? That is, is there one cleansing, but John positions it here, not because he's trying to talk about chronology, but because he's actually dealing with the theme of fulfillment. That's a long discussion that you can, you can sort out uh, on your own in your own study. Just in case you're noticing, though, that this seems dislocated from where you normally associate it in the chronology of Jesus' life from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He goes into the temple. The temple was where God met with people and where people met with God. And here you have a lot of things going on. Here you have possible extortion. That is, you have people who may be getting ripped off. One of the things that happened uh, was if you lived a long way from the temple and you couldn't bring your animal sacrifice down, you'd have to buy an animal uh, that the temple priest had already approved. Now, this could very easily become a corrupt racket, as you can imagine. So you could even bring your animal down and they start inspecting. They go, oh, you know, it has to be without blemish, but unfortunately... You know, there's this spot here, and, and you might not have noticed it. And it's not too bad. It's just on the borderline, but you know, we just can't accept it. And so now you have to buy one of their animals, and they've got a monopoly on it. Uh, or if you, bring, if you can't bring your animals too far, then you sell your animal. You bring the money down to Jerusalem to buy another one. But they wouldn't accept every currency in the temple, so now there's money exchange. I'm not sure if you've ever exchanged money. Uh, whether, wherever it is, whether it's the bank or some private, uh, private group, one of the most amazing things about exchanging money is you never actually get what your money's worth. You, know, you, you exchange your money and, and you don't actually get a fair exchange. Someone else takes some. It's the most mor- miraculous thing. Part of your money disappears in the exchange process and someone else gets to keep it somehow. You know, and so that's going on here too. You, ha- you have possibly exorbitant markups in terms of prices. You, know, you have price gouging. You have a monopoly on the animals. And you have to do this money exchange to use temple currency. And somehow you're losing a little bit in the process. So that's all possible. Den of robbers. But the, house, the temple was also supposed to be a house of prayer. I don't know how many of you have been uh, in bazaars or markets overseas. Uh, I've been in, not, I don't want to say just oversells, I've been in you know, hundreds, but I, I've been in enough uh, to know that words like serene, quiet, peaceful, 
do not apply. And so here you've got all of these people haggling in the market. Everyone's upset. You know, everyone's traveling. Everyone's tired. There's all this pressure. The city's crowded. People have come from wherever it is. You're getting ripped off, and so you're not happy. You know, and there's all these animals. I'm not sure if you've noticed this too, but animals tend to not be overly concerned with quiet. And so you have all of these animals in cages and rattling around and being driven here and there and sold and exchanged and dragged around and, and the sanitation that is involved with that kind of animal life. And this is not a place where you can go and pray. And so Jesus looks at this temple, and, and whether it's just the chaos of the market or the rakery, he's incensed. This whole complex is keeping people away from God rather than drawing them in. So he drives the whole lot of them out. The people, the animals, oh, scatters the coins of the money changers. That would have created an interesting crowd reaction. Overturns the tables. His disciples remember, zeal for your house will consume me. Interestingly enough, the Jews do not ask, they do not say anything like, huh, maybe we ought not to have been doing this. They say, who gave you the right to do this to us? Now, if you've thoughtfully read the first half of John 2, you know that Jesus is already beginning to reveal His glory. He's the Messiah. Who gave you this right? If you've read John 1, he's God incarnate. He is fulfilling everything temple represents at the wedding. He's the completion. He's the culmination. And now he comes and he sees this abomination in the temple that this whole religious system has been perverted. And he's restoring it to fulfill it and bring it to a point of completion. What sign can you show us to prove your authority? If you've read the first part of John 2 thoughtfully, you already know he can, do, he, he can do any sign he wants to prove his authority. What sign will you do? The reality is the cleansing of the temple by Messiah was a sign for people with eyes to see. In fact, it's fulfillment of, Ma- of Malachi 3, 1 and 2. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Here's the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord you are seeking, suddenly appearing in his temple. And when he appears in his temple, what does he do? He refines it and purifies it. This is precisely what Jesus is doing. And so if you you take the wedding imagery with the temple cleansing imagery, what you have is the fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1 and 2. The messenger of the covenant is here. The Lord is here. He has come to his temple to purify it and to refine it, to scrub it clean like a launderer does. That's where his authority comes from. It comes from God. Jesus answered them, this is the great sign. This is, this is the sign that will draw all men to himself. 
destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. In 587, 586 B.C., the Babylonians, we'll see this in Isaiah, come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple. They loot it, they tear it down, and they burn it. In A.D. 70, within the generation, at the very end of the generation after Jesus' death, this rebuilt temple, and this temple was actually considered one of the, one of the architectural wonders of the world at this time. It, it, it was made with, with incredible columns of marble overlaid with gold so that in the sun it was almost literally blinding. People came from all over to marvel at the richness and the appearance of this temple. 46 years to build. In AD 70, the Romans will come in and, and destroy it. And, it. and it's never been rebuilt. The Romans tear it down stone by stone. They also, they desecrate it and they burn the remains. Perhaps by slight analogy, this week has provided us with a little sense of what that might have felt like for the Jews to see. I'm not sure how many of you saw um, the live news feeds of Notre Dame on fire, but it was horrifying. It was, it was heart-wrenching and heartbreaking to see this 850-year-old Gothic cathedral, in a sense symbolizing Paris, even more so than the Eiffel Tower. Certainly historically that would be the case. Maybe not in pop culture today. But even more, in a sense, symbolizing all of France. more importantly to original design, actually symbolizing incredible theological understanding by the way it was constructed and designed. And I don't think, if you were thoughtful, you could watch it in flames without experiencing sorrow. And I'll be honest, part of the sorrow that I experienced watching that was knowing from long experience in certain circles that it would take no time whatsoever for shrill and strident voices claiming to represent God from starting to say things like, well, this is a judgment on Roman Catholicism. This is a judgment on a secular state. So it happens when you have a, well, this is in response to the French Revolution and atheism and all of those. 
nonsensical things that people who deputize themselves as the interpreters of God's providence allow themselves to say. But you watch that, and then there really isn't anything you can say. The human emotions, though, are vivid and real. But everything the temple represented and everything that Notre Dame was designed to represent in an overarching theological way, that was all destroyed. completely. In AD 33, when the real temple, when the real, when the real Gothic cathedral was nailed to the cross, destroy this temple and I will raise again in three days. Destroy this monument. Destroy this epitome of God with us-ness. And I will raise it again. And the people thought, well, you can't just knock down a temple that's taken this long to build and, and raise it up in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I did reflect a little bit. There was a time when you could watch the cathedral burning. And, and most of the commentators were, were quite, quite certain, but not 100% sure, that there was no one inside. And I remember thinking and reflecting on what it would be like if someone that you loved had been inside if someone that you loved had been on a tour and been trapped by those flames, if someone that you loved perished in that fire, if you knew that someone that you loved had been inside of that cathedral when it caught on fire, I dare say you would not have spared a thought to the art or a thought to the historic value of the wood. You, you wouldn't have wondered whether or not, you know, the, 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 the bell towers are going to be preserved. Your concern wouldn't have been the spire tipping in. All of your thoughts and all of your heart would have been with that person that you loved, wanting to know, desperate to know if they were safe. That's all you would care about.
And frankly, if they were, if they were safe, and the entire cathedral was immolated, he would still end the day with relief and joy that the one that you loved was safe. Because as much as it is tragic, and it is an unmistakable tragedy for something like this to occur, human life is far more valuable than any human monument of stone and wood. And on the cross, you have the loss of the real temple but you also have the destruction of a real person. At once, in one level of analysis, what you have on the cross is, is the death of a man, the death of Mary's son, the death of the best friend of the disciples, the death of the bridegroom, the death of the king, the death of the only innocent, purely good person who's ever lived without sin, the one who does signs and has glory, the one who teaches so wisely and well. You have the murder of the best person who's ever lived. And it was intentional. Cathedral fire was to be unintentional. There was no mistake in the murder of Jesus. He wasn't accidentally nailed to the cross. It was the most intentional act that those people had ever done. They wanted to kill him. And they did. And if you can contemplate, or if you can remember the horror of seeing the fire of Notre Dame, And if you can try to imagine the infinitely greater horror of losing a loved one in that circumstance, then you can maybe begin to enter into a little bit about what it would be like to see Jesus dying on the cross. A real person. The real beloved. In agony and shame. Being murdered by those who hated him. But the sign isn't that the temple will be destroyed. The sign is that you will destroy this temple and three days later I will raise it again. We get there. We get to resurrection. We get to life but you have to go through the death first. We gloss the death, we skate over it lightly, we, we transform the cross into you know, a, a, an, an image for, for necklaces and earrings. When really it represents the, the horrific, the horrifically designed way of torturing someone to death 
in our symbolism. It's also transformed, though, into a way that God brings atonement. And this is one of the most amazing things about it. And this is why, don't, don't misunderstand, this is why thoughtfully worn a cross is a fine symbol for a necklace or earrings or anything like that. I, I'm, not, I'm not in any way suggesting otherwise. It would have been grotesque before Christ to wear anything like that at all. It, it, was, it was intentionally designed as a device which would maximize and prolong torturous pain until someone died. And to wear that as a decoration would be insensitive at, at best. But what does Christ do? In fact, just, just, just for free, you know, the, the, the worst kind of pain you can experience is, is excruciating pain. Of course, in the etymology of excruciating, it's right in the middle of excruciating, is, is that word cruci for crucifixion. Ex in Greek means out of. Excruciating pain is pain that comes out of the cross. Because the pain that people suffered when their nerves were severed, when the nails were driven into their wrists, was so painful that a new word needed to be coined to describe it. What kind of pain do people suffer on the cross? Well, there's no word for it. The only, kind of, the only word is, it's out-of-the-cross pain. That's the word excruciating means. Out-of-the-cross. But Jesus transforms it by enduring it all. By not only submitting himself to the injustice of his murder, but simultaneously entrusting himself to the justice of God. Because at an even more important level of analysis, the cross is the work of God. It's how there's a messianic age. And that's why these things are linked together too. How can God, how can God marry a sinful people? How can God enter into joy with people who despise him? How can God, who is holy, enter into a love relationship with those who hate him? How can the one who is clean enter into a relationship with the one who is unclean? And the truth is he can't unless he changes them and purifies them. Well, how will he do that? Well, he can't just ignore their sin. He can't just ignore their guilt. He needs to deal with it. He needs to take it away. And so he does. In the person of his son, fully God and fully man, Infinite as God, able to deal with infinite wrath as a man, able to live a perfect human life, then to lay that perfect human life down in the place of sinners, backstopped by his deity, so that his life is of infinite merit and infinite worth in the sight of the Father. And he dies on the cross, and the temple is destroyed. Don't gloss that. Destroy this temple must be fulfilled before he can raise it again in three days. The temple is destroyed. And then Jesus himself raises it through the power of the Father in glory and might and resurrection life. And this is what we think about today. Today, we remember the temple's destruction. Today we remember the death of our Lord. 
But you can't remember the death of our Lord, the temple's destruction at this point in history, without also looking forward to and anticipating in grateful knowledge that the temple was raised again. He was raised to life. He died in our place. He lives in our place. And we are united with him. One of the problems with Good Friday and Easter Sunday is that it is absolutely and utterly impossible to do anything along the lines of justice to the theme which brings us together. How do you thoughtfully talk about the cross in a way which is compelling enough? How do you capture what Christ has done for us? the human pathos and pain and tragedy, the incredible glory of God revealed simultaneously, murder and atonement, violent death and everlasting life. I have no idea. I know I can't get it. I can't encapsulate it. I can't articulate it. But notice just one more thing. Verse 13 says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, and verse 23 says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, Jesus cleanses the temple at Passover time, that time where the sheep, where the substitutionary blood was shed in remembrance of the redemption that God brings about for His people, liberating them from slavery and bringing them into the promised land of freedom. You put John 2 together, and what you have is the Messiah, the coming Messianic age, the consummation and culmination and completion of wedding joy, the fulfillment of the old covenant system symbolized by the ceremonial jars of water, Fulfillment of temple. The reason there's a cleansing and fulfillment of temple is because there's a fulfillment of Passover. The destruction of the temple and the death of the Passover lamb are precisely the same thing. Slaughter the Passover lamb and I will raise it again in three days, Jesus could have said. Destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. It's the same thing expressed through different symbols. He's the fulfillment of it all. Everything God's plan was about was about Jesus. And he accomplished it. It is finished. Some believed. If you believe... I'm going to ask you to just take a moment to bow before the Lord, just in silent prayer. We know that we can't ever fully comprehend, let alone articulate, what Christ has done for us on the cross. But just to pray and pour out your heart to Him. Tell Him what's on your heart. Thank Him for what He's done. In a moment or two, I'll lead us in prayer, and then the musicians will come and lead us in our closing song.
Oh Lord, we will truly never know what the destruction of the temple cost. But all we can do is thank you for providing, providing Jesus for us as our substitute, that he was willing to die in our place. And thank you that he was also empowered to live again, that the temple that was destroyed was raised three days later. So there is life and hope for us now because of love, because of your love and the sacrifice of your son. Today and this weekend, help us to think about these things, Jesus Christ dying for us and him coming to life again. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen.